Good morning and welcome. Welcome back to those of you who came to the earlier lecture this morning and to those of you who just joined us. Uh, many of you are here as part of the fifth um, University Alumni Weekend, 21st Century Challenges, but a lot of you, we're having a parallel uh, reunion here at Keeble for our 72 to 76s old, old members who've come back. Um, three things on the domestic front I'd like to just mention first. In the event of a fire, the fire exits are well signposted, the green, green man running. Uh, for most of you, it's back up the stairs into the lobby, into the quad as you came in. Uh, but for those in the front rows, just go um, through, through, there, through the arch there and it's well signposted, uh, the, the exits. Um, Professor Darton has kindly agreed to do a question and answer session after this event and it will, um, and there is, they are filming, but the filming is only directed onto the stage for those of you who might be worried about that. The second lecture this morning is addressing a different challenge of the 21st century, the sustainability um, from the geoengineering perspective and Professor Darton, is an, is, it is his area of expertise. Um, first a little though of his background. He's been a professor of engineering and former head of engineering at the Department of Engineering here, here in Oxford, and he's a fellow, a professorial fellow of Keeble. Before that, he gained very much experience with a long and successful career in the oil industry, and he developed a lot of new technologies. He came to Oxford in 1991 primarily to set up a new course in chemical engineering. And this he did, changing the way the course was accredited and gaining and raising professional, professional standards. This led to him handling the qualifications activities of the Institute of Chemical Engineering. In 2010, he was elected president of the European Federation of Chemical Engineering, which is an association of about 40 professional societies. And he's very much involved in that at the moment, as I know. In recognition of his services to engineering, he was awarded an OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours this year. So his talk is entitled Geoengineering, Geo Fantasy or Feasible Future. So can we give him a warm welcome? Uh, thank you very much, Ruth, for that kind introduction. And it's uh, very nice to see so many people here. It's rather more than I usually see when I'm lecturing in Oxford. And I'm also pleased to see so many people taking notes, which is something students don't do nowadays. <laughs> Obviously, there are some people here from an earlier and much better educated uh, generation. So, yes, today's topic, or this morning's topic, is geoengineering. And welcome to the lecture on geoengineering. Uh, there may be some experts on geoengineering in the audience. Um, it's not terribly likely, because our work with... Uh, public surveys suggest that very few members of the general public know what geoengineering is. In fact, most people think it's something to do with building foundations or something like that. So if you've come expecting a lecture on geotechnics or piling, then I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed because we're going to be talking about something much more important, which is our collective future on the planet. And if that sounds grandiose, then I think we should be a little bit ambitious, particularly at a meeting like this with so many people from different walks of life and different backgrounds. So geoengineering is the deliberate large-scale intervention in the Earth's natural systems to moderate global warming. Why might this be needed? Why would we ever think that we would want to do this? Well, let's get a little background. Um, 
It's all to do with the Earth's energy balance, of course, and here's a, uh, a figure taken from a report by the Royal Society. Data is from IPCC, the International... Uh, uh, inter, sorry, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And it shows rather briefly and rather, in rather summary fashion the Earth's heat balance. Um, most of the heat comes from the sun, some comes from the centre of the Earth, admittedly, and some is bounced back into space by the atmosphere, but some reaches the Earth's surface, fortunately, because that's what keeps us going, keeps us warm, bounces back into space, but when it does the bounce back, it changes its wavelength, and the wavelength going out is much more easily absorbed than the wavelength coming in. So as a net result of that, we have on the right-hand side here, admit, emitted to space rather less than is coming in from space. But it doesn't matter too much because the balance is made up by what's reflected from the top of the atmosphere. But emitted from the Earth, the outgoing radiation flow depends on the Earth's surface temperature. And if you do something to absorb more heat on the way out, then the Earth's temperature will rise. And of course, as we now know, that's exactly what's happening with greenhouse gases, mainly CO2, but some other gases in the atmosphere, which are starting to absorb heat on the way out and warm up the Earth. The way we think about this is to use a bit of jargon, forcing a 1% variation in these heat fluxes, which is about 2.5 watts per square metre, which is not much, nevertheless causes a temperature change of roughly 1.8 degrees Celsius in the Earth's surface temperature on average. So that's how it works. <coughs> and of course, as a result of that, the greenhouse gas concentration is going up, so the temperature is going to rise, and as we go through this century producing more and more carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, the temperature is going to go up further and further, and we don't know where it's going to stop. But at the moment, we're about 380 ppm parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and we've already seen a temperature rise of about a degree to a degree and a half. The band here illustrates the uncertainty in climate predictions. It's not just global warming, of course, which is a problem. Um, there is also quite a problem with ocean acidification. The oceans are in some sort of pseudo-equilibrium with the atmosphere, and as there is more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, more dissolves in the oceans and takes, tends to make them more acidic. Uh, does that matter? Well, yes, it does, because... The creatures that live in the ocean are rather used to the acidity that they had, and if you change it, it upsets a huge array of biological activity. Um, creatures with shells start dissolving, and all sorts of other things. So here's an, an indication of the change in surface pH, a measure of acidity, and you can see, compared with pre-industrial levels, all the oceans are becoming gradually more acidic. And as we produce more and more CO2, this will go on happening. And in fact, were we to stop producing CO2 immediately, which is very unlikely,
but could happen, I suppose. If you thought of that as an experiment, the ocean would nevertheless go on getting acidic for a very long time, uh, drawing down CO2 from the atmosphere until an equilibrium was reached. So ocean acidity is another growing problem. Uh, where does it come from? Well, of course, we're using fossil fuels to a, a huge extent now. Here's um, some data from the United Nations about how carbon dioxide emissions are taking off. And you can see that in the last 20 years, uh, emission of carbon dioxide has gone up by about 50%. And this against a backdrop of growing realization that we actually need a trend in the other direction. So however you want to see this, you can describe it as a failure of political will, a failure of information, um, a conspiracy by scientists to alarm the world when it's not really happening, all sorts of reasonings which are outside my field of expertise really, but anyway, these are the facts. And we're now emitting, because of the economic slowdown of the last few years, we're now emitting around about 30 billion tonnes a year of carbon dioxide. Um, which, when you work it out, is about a million tonnes every 18 minutes. So since you came into this lecture theatre, um, we've emitted about a million tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which were not there previously. To put that into scale, very little of this carbon dioxide is captured on the way out to the atmosphere. There are a few projects in the world. The largest is at the Sleipner field offshore in Norwegian territorial waters, which is capturing carbon dioxide from produced gas. And that is a very large engineering project, and it is capturing one million tonnes a year. So whilst that is a very noble effort, one million tonnes a year is almost literally a drop in the ocean, and that's a very big engineering project to do that. Um, for, those interest, oops, for those interested, sorry, China and America are each producing about 20% of the total, so the leadership of those two countries are extremely... Uh, the, the, the attitudes of the leaderships of China and America are extremely important in this whole business. Um, it's actually worse than that. I'm, I'm sorry to be rather gloomy, but um, this is actually what's going on. And, and the fact is that if we stop emitting carbon dioxide, if we were to stop today, then it would take a very long time indeed for the concentration in the atmosphere to come down. Um, natural processes do draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, as we will see later in the lecture, but they work rather slowly, whereas human beings are putting the stuff up there rather quickly. Natural processes will eventually work and draw it all down, but it will take centuries or thousands of years before that takes effect. So this is a little model which shows if we stop producing next year, what will happen? If we, stop, if we continue to produce carbon dioxide as currently envisaged, 2050, and then up here in 2100, 
which will be long after I'm not here to see, but these are the levels. So whatever we stop at, it's going to take a very long time before natural systems draw CO2 down. And that, of course, is part of the argumentation for saying geoengineering, we should look at taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere um, because it may be that the effect on the climate is so severe that at some stage we actually want to draw CO2 down from the air that is in this lecture theatre and indeed over the whole surface of the earth. And I'll talk a bit about how feasible that is in a minute. Now, um, in the face of these rather gloomy facts, of course, things are being discussed. We are thinking about what we should do about it. And the UK government has committed the UK to an 88% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2050, which is an extremely ambitious target, um, a very noble goal and an example for the rest of the world. And I don't think anybody has a clue how we're going to do it. So this is an interesting exercise. But one has to say that if you don't start off with a strategy, then you're completely sunk. So you might as well think about where you'd like to be and then think about how to do it rather than just not thinking at all. So we'd better think about it now. This rather complicated picture was drawn up by the Royal Academy of Engineering in a splendid report that they produced um, just over a year ago. The reference is on the bottom here. But like all these things nowadays, you can find my slides information quite well by Googling things. Probably you can find it quicker by Googling than by actually reading out the web address. But the, the Royal Academy of Engineering report is on the web. And they looked at the current picture of energy demand in the UK, the demand supply balance, and they thought about how could we get to 2050 and change things as the government said they ought to be changed. So this is how it looks at the moment. And I'll just explain this. This is a, what's known as a Sankey diagram. So on the left-hand side, we have our energy supply in terms of boxes, so it's all diagrammatic. And on the right-hand side, we have our energy demand, again, in terms of blobs, boxes. And you can see that a big box on the left-hand side is fossil fuel, and that's nearly 100% of our energy supply system. Not quite, because we have a little bit of nuclear. We have a tiny little bit of intermittent renewables, that's windmills and stuff like that, and we have a little bit of burning biomass, but not very much. This box in the centre is very important because it's where you turn your fossil fuel into electricity and distribute it. So the grid is, if you like, the node, the coming together point which is rather key in the whole energy distribution system, particularly at the moment. On the right-hand side here, these are the energy demand boxes. Transport, a big box, as you can see, and that takes... Transport is almost all fossil fuel uh, powered. 
tiny amounts of uh, electricity. Um, HGH is uh, high-grade heat, and that's industrial furnaces, cement production, oil refineries, people who need heat which is very hot, 600, 700 degrees Celsius, that order. Electrical appliances, that's all of us with our electric toasters and our televisions and our Xboxes and our mobile phones and the lighting in here and our computers, etc., etc. LGH is low-grade heat, and that is mainly space heating for houses, but also for industry, commerce, offices, and so on. And this, so this is how it is at the moment. Low-grade heat, we mostly burn gas. Um, transport, we mostly burn, of course, oil, petrol, diesel. And the grid is mainly supplied by fossil fuel, gas, coal, mainly nowadays, mainly gas, of course. That's how it looks at the moment. What the Royal Academy did was look at a number of what they call scenarios, ways that we could change for 2050. And I don't have time to go through the whole report because I'm here to talk about geoengineering and not um, demand reduction. But let's have a look at one scenario and you can see immediately that fossil fuel in 2050 has gone down hugely. This scenario was fossil fuel to low-grade heating. So this grey line that goes up around here, we still heat our houses with, let's say, gas. Um, but we're running transport now on electricity. And this box here which had been 42 gigawatts, is now 80. So if we're going to look seriously at electrification of our transport system, the grid needs to be about twice as big as it is now, by 2050. And as we've invested almost nothing in the grid since about 1970, that is a huge demand for electrical engineers. So if you want your children or younger people here to get a good future go into power engineering because they're going to be in huge demand for the next 50 years. And you heard it here first. I'm not an electrical engineer, by the way. I'm a chemical engineer, and there's going to be even more demand for chemical engineers. And for civil engineers to build the infrastructure and so on. So engineering has a future. What else would I say? Okay, so Mitigation, at the top of the slide, is the name of this game. The response to um, global warming, ocean acidification, one major response has to be mitigation. In other words, reduce the drivers of change. Let's do something about the dangerous gases that we are emitting, reduce them. But, by the way, this means a huge change in our way of life. And that's something which is a message of this lecture, if you haven't heard it before. It's also important that in 2050, the world out there, well, actually, not the world outside here, because those who can see outside the window here, this will look much the same, I guess, in 2050. But if you imagine a motorway, a factory, a place of commerce, 
an airport, it's going to look very, very different in 2050. Either according to this or some of the other scenarios, but things have got to change. The other way of thinking about the future is adaptation, so-called, in the jargon. And that means not trying to fight the change or reducing the drivers, but to adapt to what is happening. I've only got one slide on that, not because it's unimportant. It is actually extremely important. But I'm here to talk about geoengineering, and adaptation is an alternative to geoengineering, which is very important. So we need to prepare civil flood defences, for example, because London is going to be um, attacked much more frequently by flood events, and all other coastal areas, by the way. We need to adapt our water and sewage supply systems because there are going to be more frequent floods. The weather is going to get more uh, fierce. There are going to be more periods of drought, but also more periods of heavy rain, not just in the UK, but in most places in the world. Um, so we need to adapt the civil infrastructure. Um, things like tropical diseases, which are coming in our direction. Tropical diseases and diseases of warmer climates we're going to see here in the UK, for example. Um, winters will be much milder, so we will see completely different pests in our gardens because they won't be killed off in the winter, and so on. Industry needs to adapt. The food industry is going to be clearly affected by climate. Insurance, agriculture, fisheries and forestry, we're looking at different species in the fields. And if this sounds like too much change to take on, it is already, of course, slowly happening. So adaptation means... It's slowly happening and we've got to adjust. And to a large extent, humans are, of course, very adjustable and that will happen. This is the Royal Academy of Engineering. There is no more time left for further consultations or detailed optimization. We should get on with it. Actually, this statement was made with regard to mitigation and the Royal Academy of Engineering's scenarios for the future, but the message is still the same that change needs to start straight away. In fact, should already have started. And the civil power is already thinking about these things, of course. So government is already thinking. But whether the population out there is thinking, I'm not at all sure. So that's another message. So where does geoengineering come into this? It's not reducing the drivers for change. It's not preparing for change is what you might call fighting the change. Trying to do something about those uh, drivers, trying to do something about the changes in ocean and, and uh, atmosphere to see if we can't, by those interventions, make things work better. And this little picture is from a quite recent US government Office of Accountability report, which is rather good. That's also available on the web, recently produced. And this shows, in one picture, an artist's impression of some of the geoengineering projects which have been suggested. For example, cloud brightening at sea. You could blow seawater into the air to make clouds which would reflect sunshine back into space. You'd need to have rather a lot of clouds, but it's... You could do that. 
Iron fertilization. You could put fertilizers, either iron, the, 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 the element iron, Fe, into the ocean where it's in short supply, or phosphorus in some places, which would cause all sorts of marine um, growth, sort of cultivating the oceans or parts of them as a, as a garden. That would draw down carbon dioxide into uh, making, uh, making, making the uh, plants. And eventually these plants would settle to the bottoms of the ocean and that would have the effect of taking CO2 out of the atmosphere safely to the bottom of the ocean. It's been suggested and it might work. Capture CO2 from the air, I'm going to say a bit more about that, but you could do that and then you could bury the CO2 down holes in the ground. I hope it stays down there, you could perhaps do that. Um, you could put aerosols into the stratosphere and I'm going to talk a bit about that in a minute. Again with the idea of bouncing radiation back into space. You could grow trees. In fact, we should do. In fact, the best thing to do is stop cutting down the trees that are already growing, of course. Um, stop deforestation, but indeed start afforestation. That takes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere too, mainly. Um, you could paint your roof white to reflect sunlight back. And in fact, that's probably a good idea anyway. Um, it's been suggested you'd have to do it on a very large scale to make any difference to the climate, but it's, it's an idea. So, there are lots of schemes that have been proposed um, for making things better. Um, we scientists and academics like to categorise things. We feel much more comfortable talking about categories. So we've categorised these. And there are two main types of geoengineering scheme. One is so-called solar radiation management. This is terminology from the Royal Society report on geoengineering, which is well worthwhile to read document. So that's sending some sunlight back into space before it gets here in and, and warms us up. And the other major class of scheme is carbon dioxide removal, which is taking greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide mainly, out of the atmosphere. So let's think about one or two SRM schemes in a bit more detail. And here's one that is actually quite far advanced in terms of uh, description because it was put forward by a couple of engineers and they do tend to make suggestions that are a bit more practical, I have to say. Although you might think this is uh, science fiction, but Stephen Salter's idea is to make some ships. You'd only need about 1,500 of them cruising around the world's oceans in the right strategic places, blowing one micron-sized particles into the sky. Here's another artist's impression of a ship. And those clouds would then reflect uh, sunlight back into space. So it's, if you like, increasing what we call the albedo, the reflectiveness of the Earth's surface. And to some extent, this does already happen, that you can see ships that are travelling around and burning fuel oil and making um, uh, condensate trails in the air. You can see clouds above ships 
over the oceans in some part of the world. And this would be doing it on a very big scale. And Stephen Salter and his colleagues have worked out that 1,500 ships floating around and um, working like this could give you a negative forcing of about three to four watts per square meter, which would correct a global warming of up roughly four degrees, which is what we could expect towards the end of this century, perhaps. So at the cost of 1,500 ships, if it works, by the way, which is not a huge amount. I mean, 1,500 ships is not that expensive compared with some of the other schemes, anyway. Um, you could, perhaps, uh, win four degrees. But there are, of course, some downsides to this. It would change weather locally in the region where these ships were. Um, unintended side effects are a big problem with all these schemes. So that's one that's reasonably well thought through. Here's one that we're currently doing research on and in which has been the subject of a lot of press comment in the last two weeks because it was announced at the uh, recent um, meeting of the, um, of the, the, the British uh, Science Society or whatever it's called. Anyway, they did a press conference about this. And it's the so-called SPICE project which is putting a balloon up a kilometre into space and then tethering a pipe to it and seeing if you can pump a, a spray up this pipe. Um, the idea is, in reality, to do, make this pipe 20 kilometres long and have the balloon really pretty big. According to The Guardian, um, the size of Wembley Stadium, 20 kilometres up in the sky, that would be the real project. But at the moment, they're just investigating what would happen to this pipe. There's a very interesting question in structural dynamics. A, a kilometre of pipe tethered to a balloon is quite a slender, floppy structure. And if the wind blows, um, some dire things will probably happen, like it will fall down. But anyway, they're, they're having a go. Um, led by a colleague of mine from Cambridge to see if they can do this and to see if they can pump, pump in the first instance, water up this pipe to see what happens. So, you know, it's a start. The SPICE project is funded by the UK Research Council and has elicited a wide range of um, comment. The Daily Mail, God bless them, produced a piece about this and they illustrated it with a picture of a zeppelin <laughs> to show people what a balloon looks like <laughs> and a picture of Wembley Stadium to show people what Wembley Stadium looks like, <laughs> thereby making it perfectly clear to the reading public exactly what this is all about. <laughs> okay. Um, other SRM proposals? Let's think about it. One that's been put forward by somebody, is to cover about 10 million square kilometres of desert, which are available, we do have that much desert, with reflective sheeting, something like, just imagine all those uh, growing tunnels that you see, but it's a big flat sheet, 10 million square kilometres of silver foil or something like that, reflecting radiation back into space. 
And the net effect of that would be about 2 watts per square millimeter per square meter. So that might save you a, a, a degree or two. Um, it would, of course, have rather dire effects on anybody who was living in the desert, depending whether they wanted to be under the sheet or on top of it. <laughs> and I think it's rather a quaint idea that the deserts are, in fact, empty and, and open to this type of intrusion. Um, it would cause mass extinctions of desert fauna and flora, of course. But anyway, you could do it. Another one is to put... Um, not pigs into space, but reflectors into space to, um, to, to like mirrors to, to reflect big mirrors or plenty of small mirrors. Um, you'd need to put up a, a massive amount of material and according to some sums that we've been doing recently, you'd need an organisation several hundred times the current size of NASA for the amount of launch and maintenance that you would need to do with this huge array of mirrors. But nevertheless, it's an idea. Um, you can tell I'm not terribly keen on this one, but it's an idea. And then, of course, there's this thing about painting roads, buildings, and even planting more reflective trees. Did you know that some trees are more reflective than others? It's true. So we could select for reflective trees and plant those, and that would, that would all help. Or we, we could do something to encourage snow to stay, sit on trees for longer, because snow is much more reflective than tree is. So there's various things, but I think the, the message really is to say most of these ideas that are put forward are, well, pretty half-baked, I have to say. I mean, there's a germ of an idea there, but when you start poking at them, you realise that the proponents have got very enthusiastic, but they really need thinking through what would the side effects be, could you actually do it, would they work, and so on. So there's a lot of work really to be done in evaluating these suggestions. So these are the sort of questions you would have in such an evaluation. Well, first of all, does the scheme work? Do you get the effect which is uh, wanted? Secondly, what about side effects? Because you can easily imagine for yourselves that some of these interventions are pretty severe interventions and they will have all sorts of side effects, changing climate, um, eliminating species, um, all, sorts of, all sorts of things. So what are the side effects? Then there are some very interesting governance issues, of course. Um, who's going to pay for all this? Um, and possibly related to that, who's going, going to control such a scheme because it's going to affect the whole of humanity? So are we going to have a United Nations Commission? Or, you know, and what about if some country somewhere decides it's going to have a go on its own bat, irrespective of what everybody else thinks? because some of these schemes are small enough that a country could decide unilaterally to, to, to engage in them. Will we be able to turn them off? A big consideration. Uh, could it be that some of these schemes, once you've started, if they started going wrong, uh, we wouldn't be able to do anything about it and we could be in an even worse situation. 
Is there a better alternative? That's a good one. Because some of these schemes clearly are extremely expensive. Could we do something else with the money? Um, could we do something better? And then there's the whole idea of um, ethical and moral um, acceptability. And that's something we'll talk about just briefly at the end of the lecture, that some people find the whole idea of interfering deliberately with the climate quite repugnant. And they have a point. I mean, there are some quite worrying aspects to that. So we need to think about that as well. So I'd like now... I talked a bit about SRM, solar radiation management. I'd like to talk a bit about carbon dioxide removal, particularly with a view to these two questions. Will it work? And is there a better alternative? And the particular type of process I'm going to think about is one that uses um, removal schemes with liquid or solid adsorbent, which have been suggested. Now then, where is the CO2 coming from? About half of it comes from stationary sources, and there are about 8,000 of them, so not that many. About half of the world's CO2 comes from just a few 8,000 sources, and we know where they are. They are power stations, cement factories, oil refineries, big plant, big plant. The sorts of things that chemical engineers design and operate, I have to say. And we know where they are. So one thing we could do, of course, is to remove CO2 at source in the parts of the world where we produce a lot of it, which is Europe, North America, China, Japan, and minor amounts in South Africa and a little bit in Australia, but the big blocks are where it really comes from. China, Europe, and North America. And at the moment, almost none of this is captured. There are just a few projects absorbing a couple of million tons a year, which is really almost nothing. So there's a few things to say. First of all, capturing CO2 is a very well-known industrial process. We've been doing it for years. Um, absorption with solvent or adsorption with a porous solid, they are well-known processes, as indeed is uh, the use of membranes. So we know how to do that. One thing that's important is the work of separation. Once the carbon dioxide is diluted, it takes quite a lot of work, and I mean literally work, so kilowatts of work need to be employed to get it back. And the thermal efficiency of separation processes is fairly low. It's less than 10%. So it's going to take you more than 10, 10 times the theoretical minimum energy to get the CO2 back. Waste heat has to be dumped. And there's a cooling requirement. In fact, conventional processes, to remove a tonne of CO2, you need about 80 tonnes of water. So if we apply this on a big scale, there's going to be a huge water demand. Some consumption of chemicals, and you need then eventually to put the CO2 down a hole in the ground, because you can't just let it go again, because that would be quite pointless, of course. <laughs> oh, there's people who haven't thought of that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So... Here we go. The volume fraction of CO2 in your gas, if you're working with flue gas, you're up here. 
you don't need to handle so much gas, and that's the whole point, whereas if you're working with air, because the carbon dioxide is so dilute in air, you need huge volumes of air to pass through your absorbers. Enormous volumes of air. Huge. Much better to get the CO2 before it's got out of the chimney stack. Also, with regard to energy, this is the minimum reversible work. If you're working with flue gas, you're down here. If you're working with air, you're up here, and you need about two and a half times as much minimum reversible energy, so-called. And that's because it costs you more to recover something that's dilute. Ask a gold miner. Gold exists in very small quantities, very small concentrations. Getting it out is extremely expensive. Producing things that are there in a high concentration is much cheaper. So you have a bit of a problem, because if you're going to take CO2 out of the atmosphere, you're going to need about two and a half kilowatt hours per kilogram of carbon dioxide. And then the problem is, how are you going to run your CO2 removal machine? Because if you, as fuel for your machine, use lignite, you're producing half a kilogram for every kilowatt, and you're not capturing that much. So your removal machine is actually producing more CO2 than it's capturing. Not good business, ladies and gentlemen, not good business. So you couldn't fuel it with lignite, you could barely fuel it with coal, you would have to fuel it with natural gas or a renewable energy source which doesn't produce any CO2 much. But you would then, of course, be much better off turning off your coal and lignite-fired power stations and using the fuel that you are going to drive your carbon dioxide removal machine with to produce electricity. So there is very little room for a machine that sucks carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Because you can't fuel the bloody thing. Sorry, you'll have to cut that out of the film. <laughs> you cannot fuel the plant because you're producing more CO2 than you capture. Unless you've got masses of available uh, renewable energy, for example, you could build such a plant on Iceland and use the energy coming out of a geyser or a volcano, which otherwise is not being tapped into. But you could also develop a scheme for Iceland in which that was turned into electricity or some other energy-intensive product and ship that. So it's not at all clear to me that there is any future in carbon dioxide re removal machines. And some of you may remember that the Virgin Challenge, which was launched a few years ago, where Richard Branson offered to give, I can't remember, two and a half million pounds, five million pounds, to anybody who could invent a CO2 removal machine. And one of the problems that that challenge has come up with is exactly this, that it's impossible. So, <laughs> there are ways around this. I mean, you could talk about growing trees where the energy comes from the sunlight. So there are ways of getting CO2 out of the air, but not using a chemical process. 
But not everybody agrees with that. So there are some interesting arguments going on. Other CDR proposals, which I'm not going to spend so much time on, but which you can read a lot about on the web, for example, and which have been discussed a lot in uh, newspapers and so on. Ocean fertilization to grow marine biota, which draws CO2 out of the atmosphere. Um, there have been some experiments done on this, not with any um, definite result, I have to say, but it's thought that a widespread use of this technique could capture about three gigatons of carbon dioxide a year, which is about 10% of what we produce. Growing more trees, which appeals to me because it seems a rather harmless way of going about trying to help the situation. Trouble is you'd need an awful lot of them. Um, we currently plant about uh, five million hectares a year and cut down about the same amount. Um, if we planted 50 million hectares a year, it's thought that we may be able to capture about three gigatons a year of CO2, so that's another 10%, roughly. Um, a nice side effect of that would be that we would need to recruit about 100 million forestry workers over the whole globe. And I, that seems to me rather nice, forestry workers. You have a sort of mental image of these people wearing brown clothes and a hat with a feather in it. And it, this is probably completely inaccurate. I don't know if anybody here is from the forestry business, but it just seems to me a, a, a nice occupation for all those people who are not going to be able to work in oil and gas anymore, because we've done away with them. Uh, biochar is another possibility, taking wood or biomass, pyrolyzing it, that's just turning it into carbon, and then burying it in a hole in the ground, or spreading it on agricultural ground. Um, also a nice idea, the amount of CO2 it would capture would of course depend on the scale. The problem with all these um, agricultural solutions is that in order to make any real contribution, you need a huge amount of agricultural land and you would be competing with other crops, those that we need to feed ourselves. So this is always a problem also with things like biodiesel, by the way, that the amount of land you need is so huge that it's only a, a tiny contribution that you can make. But biochar is much discussed and in terms of a few million tons a year, it's a nice solution. But whether you could do it on a enough, big enough scale is, is rather unclear. Enhanced weathering is a project that we're working on here in Oxford, and I'd like to say a little bit more in detail about that. And that's on the next slide. You remember I showed you early on that carbon dioxide is drawn naturally out of the atmosphere. And this is for a number of reasons, but an important one is that CO2 reacts with rather a wide range of rocks types. In particular, um, silicate rocks and basalts, which have a large fraction of alkaline components of them up to 20% by weight in the basalt. Um, the CO2 reacts rather slowly. The end product is usually a calcium or magnesium or other carbonate and silica. 
And you can see here, for example, that white material is uh, calcium carbonate, which has been produced in a spoil tip, um, and it's completely naturally formed. And spoil tips do, in fact, draw down CO2, and we have good evidence that they're doing that even as we speak. And they're working in our favour. The trouble is that they work too slowly. So the project that we're doing as engineers is to look to see whether we can make this go any faster. And a number of groups around the world are working on what's called enhanced weathering, making this weathering process go 100 times, 1,000 times as fast, and thereby drawing down CO2. And it, it seems to have some potential. One nice aspect of this is that there is quite a lot of waste material around, coal ash, fly ash, um, the residues from the cement making industry and so on. And these could be put to work and possibly draw down mm, a gigaton a year, something like that. But once again, as with SRM processes, we really do not know enough about how these schemes would work, particularly on the large scale that you would need to make a, an effect. It's really the scale. These, these things would have to be done on a very big scale. Um, one of my colleagues, who's I think not here today, has developed a scheme for um, a silicate reaction, and it involves digging up quite a lot of South Australia. Um, <laughs> grinding it to a rather small size and throwing it in the sea in a controlled manner. Um, are there any Australians here? Um, you know, on, on paper, and uh, you know, it all looks absolutely fine. I, what the people of South Australia would say, I'm not sure. But these things need to be checked. There may be some mileage in... in um, enhanced weathering, and that's something that needs, needs looking into. So, I'm winding towards the end now. The Royal Society did a splendid report about two years ago now, in which they ranked quite a wide range of geoengineering proposals on the grounds of effectiveness here as a function of affordability, and the colour of the blobs on this slide denotes their um, assessment of safety. That is not only just human safety, but environmental safety. How much damage would you do to the environment? So, for example, stratospheric aerosols get an orange rating because we're not quite sure what putting sulfuric acid up on a permanent basis into the stratosphere might do. Um, it might give us global cooling, which is what we want, but it might give us various other unpleasant side effects. So, and also, covering the desert with uh, aluminium foil doesn't look like a good idea. What we want, of course, is a large green blob up here, which is very affordable, very safe, and highly effective. And, well, you can see that there isn't one, uh, of course. If there was, we'd be doing it, probably. Some of these other things, Beck's is nothing to do with a well-known footballer. That is uh, biomass energy and carbon storage. So that's using biomass to, to produce energy and then storing the, uh, 
the carboniferous part of it, of, of the waste. CO2 air capture, I personally think the Royal Society rated far too highly. I've exposed my prejudices already. I'm very much against that. The Royal Society thought it seemed like a good idea. I don't. But, you know, two years have passed, and I think now some of these things are seen in a slightly different light. But it was a very good attempt, and it, it did open up the public debate, which was great. So I'm part of a so-called IAGP project, the Integrated Assessment of Geoengineering Proposals, which is looking at these proposals from an engineering point of view, but also in terms of climate modelling and ocean modelling, and also taking a sounding with public. We have quite a large activity here in terms of public outreach of sounding out what people think about these issues in terms of governance and so on. And the idea is to come up with something which is much, hopefully, much better than this in terms of being better, uh, better resourced, better engineered, better quantified, and with a public outreach which Royal Society didn't have time to do. There are a number of arguments made against geoengineering. It's misallocating resources. We can find something better to do with the money. It's not going to work and your Unintended consequences are going to cause all sorts of damage. Hubris, which I understand is Greek, which means arrogance, I understand. And one has to say that one does encounter colleagues who are sometimes a bit too wedded to their own particular ideas. Um, global warming and ocean acidification are complex issues and perhaps not susceptible of a simple uh, technological solution. Vested interests, there are some very murky um, comments around and some um, uh, rather disreputable public relations activities going on either to persuade people that geoengineering is a good thing or a bad thing, and much of which is, is sponsored by people who have a very definite financial interest in the outcome. And then there's a very interesting one about moral hazard. If we can cure the ills of CO2 production by geoengineering, will that encourage people to be more profligate of the Earth's resources? This is a well-known argument, and I'm not particularly qualified to get into it. I have colleagues here who think about philosophy and ethics and these things, but it's an interesting one. You know, should we cure AIDS? Because if there's a cure, people will be more promiscuous, and that's perhaps a bad thing. You know, if we cure global warming, perhaps we'll just go on belching out CO2, and that's perhaps not a good thing. So there's, there's a real argument to be had there with respect to moral hazard. To answer some of these things, group uh, colleagues here at Oxford came up with these principles, which you can find described on the web, which is basically treating the whole idea and the discussion as something that should be in the public arena for the public good, uh, and that it should be approached in a proper, let's say, quantitative and objective fashion as far as possible. But proper behavior of scientists in this area is absolutely crucial because public trust is an essential part of what we're about. Because if any of these schemes ever have to be deployed, they will, of course, have a, and this is the intention, have an effect on everybody's lives. 
So these are things that need to be very, very carefully thought about. So, in conclusion, the world has changed and we can't put it back as it was in the pre-industrial era, nor even as it was 100 years ago. Ocean acidification and climate change are going to be with us for certainly all the generations in this lecture theatre and for the foreseeable future. So we have to learn to deal with it. And I, I, I hesitated before putting this conclusion up here because scientists and engineers are generally fairly reticent about being so clear about things. But I thought really the time is over where we need to pussyfoot about, you know, but the counter-arguments and the you know, shades of grey in this. We actually need to do something. The world has changed. We can't go back to 1860. We can't go back to 1911. We can't even go back to 1960. So rapid mitigation, slimming down our use of fossil fuels for the UK, looking at a completely different energy mix is absolutely essential. Adaptation is essential everywhere because these changes are coming. We need to get ready for them. Geoengineering may offer some solutions, but they do need checking. That's the message. There are some interesting ideas out there, but it, they're all at a very early stage of development, and their deployment would be on a massive scale. We need to know much more than we do at the moment. So I'm very much a proponent of doing research in this area, not particularly with the view to application and, and deployment, but we need to know what's possible because you never know what might be needed. And finally, I'd just like to acknowledge, of course, contributions of a lot of colleagues here and in other places, Ed Pitt, Tim Kruger, Phil Renforth, Gideon Henderson and Naomi Vaughan, and, of course, funding from the Oxford Martin School, not to forget, and the research councils. And finally, to thank you for your attention. Thank you.